I'm with Lea Borromeo, uh, who's a filmmaker um, who has recently put together a film called The Mortician of Manila. It projected last night in Montreal at Cinema Politica. And well, I'll just first say hi. Hey. Hey, how are you doing? Good, good morning. Good, good morning. Thanks for, for taking the time to meet up. Um, so The Mortician of Manila, you're touring it right now. Uh, it's a very critical moment for the Philippines. Um, uh, on a variety of fronts, uh, when we talk about the environment, when we talk about um, when it comes to state-sanctioned violence against marginalized people, um, can you speak to the the film and this moment, and uh, why, or uh, what you're trying to bring up, what you're trying to highlight in this tour through this documentary? I mean, one of the great things about having a film like this to actually tour with is that we can actually start having conversations not just with the diaspora but also with people interested in those issues and interested in things like human rights and things like social justice um, and also try to bring in people who would otherwise be pretty much on side with the likes of Duterte so this film is very much unlike a number of documentaries that have been made which are, I, I feel may kind of sensationalize or sensationalize or basically be kind of a little bit too hyper pornographic I think in terms of, of, of how they kind of view um, the issues in, in the Philippines and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that they're not made by Filipino filmmakers um, who don't necessarily have not just the verbal language but the actual kind of social language around it um, I was born in Manila and I, I grew up in Chicago, but you know I was still brought up with that language, uh, and it's something that I, I, you know, it's kind of part of me and ingrained in me. And I think I want, you know, I want to use this film as a way of saying this is this is kind of how we are, and this isn't one of those films that's going to have somebody talk at you or talk down to you or or tell you what to think. This is very much laying things out. It's the life of a guy who runs a 24-hour funeral parlor in Duterte's Philippines. You know, the fact that you have to have a 24-hour funeral parlor um, already speaks volumes about what the situation is like. And we follow a mother whose son was unfortunately found dead and was brought into this funeral parlor. And, you know, you go through that story and you follow her life as well. And we're just laying this out, you know, as it is. Orly, our main character, he is a Duterte supporter and a Marcos supporter and he believes in um, that the president is doing good. Like about 75% of Filipinos, he believes the president is doing good. And the mother also voted for Duterte, although she may not necessarily agree with that right now. But, you know, we're dealing with people who believe in this guy and believe that in his message and that he could make the country a better place by effectively killing drug dealers and, and drug users. So, I mean, looking at what's happened since the uprising in um, 1986 until now, 
um, there has been a lot of talk um, over past administrations, particularly under the Arroyo administration, about state violence. Uh, there was, you know, major uh, political killings that took place under the Arroyo administration, especially after 9/11, with some obviously linked to the United States. Um, military and foreign policy but this violence that's happened under Duterte has really touched the majority uh, in terms of state violence touching daily life especially for poor and working people um, could you maybe talk about why this moment is important in relation to what has happened since um, 1986 and like, and how there's sort of a trajectory uh, between the last, like how this relates to past administrations. Because I think there seems to be often a way of presenting Duterte as this anomaly, yeah. you know, as, as sort of this very um, unique moment, but it's obviously connected. That is an absolutely excellent question. And it's, beca- it's excellent because yes, Duterte is, Duterte is put, you know, presented as an anomaly. But actually, if you look at the history of the Philippines, even prior to 1986, um, you know, because when 1986 happened, you had Cory Aquino, who was the, you know, the, the, the wife of an assassinated um, opposition leader, you know, come into power, and then all sorts of various sort of levels of neoliberalism um, were slid into until we came to Duterte. But if you look prior to that, not even, don't even look at Marcos, who was the dictator who was deposed in 1986, but you actually look at the foundation of the Philippines. If you look at American colonialization of the Philippines, and if you go ahead of that and go to the Spanish colonization, how the Philippines was even formed, how it was even named the Philippines, you know, you're looking at Spanish monarchs, you're looking at a bunch of pirates who came over and did exactly what they did in Latin America, and they did it in South Asia, in Southeast Asia with the Philippines and if you draw the parallels between if you think about the Philippines not as an not as, not as an Asian country but think of it as a Latin American country then you'll see much more you know you'll, you'll try to make more sense out of exactly what's happening this, these are the hangovers of Spanish colonization these are the hangovers of people who went into countries and said convert or die with a sword and so that violence unfortunately is now in our blood and, and that kind of, that way of dealing with things and rationalizing with situations wow. is very much in our blood and, and has, has deep, deep roots in, in that kind of colonization. So the urgency now, can we, t- I mean, your film is talking about the urgency of the moment. The Mortician of Manila is, is your film. Um, so given this context, can you talk about the alarm, the emergency that you're trying to address through this documentary at, at this current moment? I mean, obviously, people have been organizing on the ground uh, in Manila. There's been, of course, outrage by international human rights organizations, but little has changed in terms of policy, um, despite also Filipinos in the country engaging in protests. Uh, at a grassroots level, there's been a, a huge pushback. Um, so could you talk about the urgency of this moment, but also maybe highlight, aside from international organizations, the way that grassroots you know, people are responding to this moment? Yeah, I mean, nothing can really be more urgent, I think. Well, a few things can be more urgent than 
an average of 33 people being killed every day um, in this way. So, depending on who you're, you're talking to, the figures could be up, you know, north of 25,000 people. Uh, 25, 27,000 people have died since 2016. So, you know, it's urgent and present, and, and the danger is very real for people on the streets today. And, you know, every time we walked into the morgue and we said hi to Orly, we're like, how many do we have today? Well, we've got four. Oh, we've got three. Oh, yeah, it's a bit slow today. We've only got two. You know, and then he will, you know, it will just, it's just a constant flow of bodies in and out. And there's a constant flow of wakes and constant funerals and everything just keeps, you know, taking along. And for him, this is a man who lives and works with death as his everyday life you know I mean we're currently sitting here in a bakery just as people here are kind of making croissants and bread um, he's just dealing with bodies coming in and you know so that's that's pretty urgent I mean that's that's kind of that's current um, and now but the thing is one of the reasons I want to take the film around and I'm trying to, I am taking it around is because I want this conversation to, to happen everywhere there happens to be not just Filipinos but any with any threat of somebody coming in to actually make this a policy because when you think that killing somebody is a solution for anything you know you you know you're hitting you know possibly near bottom of the barrel in terms of where your society is is at because killing somebody should never be a solution for anything that's just not you know that 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 jars with every sort of moral fiber that i have and i think with, with a lot of people as well how was being in manila and thinking about um this moment and working on this film how, how was it for you? I mean it was intense because that was a year where I'd lost my mom who's the, the person who basically just sort of you know seeded me with, with all of my politics and all of my sort of my world views um, or at least she got me to start asking questions at a very young age um, so I lost her and then I'd already kind of buried our miscarried daughter about a month or so before I, you know, I started coming out with this this film idea, and you know, there's a whole lot of other sort of you know family and political dramas that I was going through. So I was I was coming at it from a position of loss, and there was a kind of internal desire to want to leave some kind of I wouldn't say necessarily a legacy, but want to leave something lasting, and to make sure that you know my let's you know let's put it this way it's it's if I'd had my daughter, this film would never exist. So if I was going to make a film, I was going to make something that was going to last. Um, yeah. Carrying that forward in Manila, um, the mortician of Manila, um, can you talk about like being with the characters of the film and how that was? I mean, Orly is one of the most fascinating and interesting people I'll ever meet. And would I consider him a friend? Yeah, I do now. Um, I, uh, I like having conversations with him because he is so politically on the opposite end of, of, of my spectrum, you know? So I, I like people who challenge me. I like people who not necessarily call me out on my shit, but also just, you know, offer me a a perspective or a view that you know isn't within my comfortable social circle yeah yeah so I, I like having talks with him about that and and when I ask him hey buddy how's your day been 
you know, he'll say, you know, he'll say, you, you give me all the sort of like goings on about who's done what and what gossips happened. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, the dog that is also featured in the film has now been run over by a car. So that's bad. So, you know, he'll give me the local neighborhood gossip, plus send me some incredibly graphic photos because when I ask him, hey, what's up today? What else does he have to show? <laughs> it's kind of, this is his daily routine. And so he'll send me dismembered, disemboweled people um, on my Facebook Messenger. And I'm like, hey, thank you. <laughs> it's, it's, it's uncomfortable um, still having that. But then you also have to accept that this is his daily grind. You know, his daily grind is actually fairly extreme. So this is really far from the Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch reports. It's, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that an Amnesty International report would very much like to mention, but I think would be far too politically or even too emotionally charged. You know, it's, these are what those in the NGO sector would, I think, mislabel as a case study. Yeah, um, and that's the one thing I always try to be mindful of is that these are people, not case studies, not subjects, you know, not main characters. Fundamentally, you know, we're, we're we're people, and I'm a person. I'm also an interventionist because I'm a director. You know, I'm con- overly conscious of the effect that I have by invading a space and intervening in that space and turning a camera on and presenting stories to the world. That's, that is an intervention. I'm, I'm causing a ripple in time. And so every film I make and every statement I make and every sort of like an interview that we can you know, conduct is causing some kind of ripple in time. So we have to own up to that and, and be responsible for whatever those effects are. So today, in, in talking about the Philippines... Uh, internationally, the issue of po- um, police and also not just police, but also paramilitary groups um, killing um, in the context of Duterte's quote-unquote war on drugs is being discussed. But there's a lot of other issues that are connected to that are that are outside of the headlines, um, obviously. Uh, but could you talk about like the mortician of Manila tells this story, but Obviously, you're coming at this with a broader uh, um, lifelong engagement with these issues. Um, so what, what are you hoping people come away from this film thinking about uh, uh, in terms of... I mean, I guess there's, it depends on who's watching it, but I mean, at least for you, mm-hmm. putting that film out there, what are you, what are you hoping that, that people take away from this film and, or... Are you hoping people take action, or like what? What are, what are some things? Yeah, I mean, one of the issues that that isn't actually being addressed, and chief of those issues that isn't actually being addressed by, by quite a lot of things, when you when you look at the headline of the war on drugs, is the reason why you're there in the first place, and that is through a lot of social, psychosocial, and social political inequality. You know, it's basically the, the you know the shit that's been wrought on you by capitalism, the shit that's been wrought on you by the fact that it's a deeply, deeply class-driven society. You have the haves and the have-nots, and then what we're looking at here in the film are the have-nots. And it's how the haves have managed to still keep the have-nots fighting each other 
and killing each other. Yeah. So that they can still, quite, you know, quite happily sit there and keep on governing the country. Because, you know, let it not be forgotten that Duterte is not a man of the people. He is a member of the elite. And he is still perpetuating all of the tropes of the elite. And, there, you know, that will never... You can never he can never shake that from himself. But no matter how much of a badass attitude he tries to put forth, he is not a man of the people. And so if there is anything that I would like people to, to, to come away with after they watch the film, one, I'd like them just to feel, just to open themselves up to feeling the emotion and trying to feel what it is like for Orly, what it is like for Angelina, what it is like for people there. And then once they've actually you know, touched into some of those most basic human emotions, try to work, you know, work their way up from their heart to their head and see whether or not what they're doing in their daily life is actually making things kinder and better for everybody around them. And if they happen to be Filipino, whether or not it's making it kinder and better for, you know, your diaspora and for your family and for your extended family back home. You know, it's that's that's kind of what I really want people to do is the, the, the biggest action that, that anybody could take is to actually just be able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and empathize with their situation and see what you can do in your life to make somebody like that feel a little bit better or lift them up and empower them and actually give them some kind of some, something of what you already have. Thinking about this moment in the Philippines, I, I really appreciate what you said earlier about looking at the history as connected to the same history of colonization in the Americas. The war on drugs has been like a framework for state and also corporate violence throughout Latin America. It's sort of transferred now in a lot of ways in terms of actual deficializing of that discourse in the Philippines. Um, could you, do you have any thoughts about that? In, in, what, in what sense? Just in the sense that, like, the way that the war on drugs discourse was used in Latin America, I mean, in Mexico, it involved the taking of lands, mm -hmm. uh, the, the militarization of police. Uh, yeah. There was a lot of different mechanisms of state violence that were um, shielded by this discourse of the war on drugs. Uh, also, I mean, it, it's different in every place. In, in the United States, uh, uh, People talk about internal colonies and how the war on drugs is part of that. Um, other parts of Latin America, different story. But it's just interesting to think about. I mean, your film, The Mortician of Manila, is like looks at ground zero of what that war on drugs looks like for human beings at a very grassroots level. Um, but more broadly, um, thinking about these systems and the war on drugs. Um, as sort of a language of violence, of state violence. Yeah, I mean, this is like, again, like going back to the whole Latin American parallel yeah. that, that should more often be drawn, I yeah. think, when you're looking at places like the Philippines. You know, it is about power, and it's about securing circles and centers of power. Yeah. And whether or not that may or may not have had some sort of American agency in it, or, yeah. and I think in the case of the Philippines, an American aspiration not so much like not so much like a an actual sort of direct influence but more in the sense of you know it's this, it's the success of, of of the most oppressive nations that or the most oppressive powers where you don't even have to oppress the country that you're you're you know you want to control you yeah. just kind of trick them into behaving for you in any way and this is kind of what's happened in the philippines they've just been tricked into going oh we want we want this status 
you know, there are people within the Philippines who say, but look, hey, take a look at Singapore. They're wonderful. They're profitable. They're, they're rich, but they have a lot of discipline. We need discipline. Then we'll be rich. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a kind of slightly fucked up mindset when it, go, when it comes to that. And there was, a, there was an interesting person at the, the, the Q&A um, last night at Concordia who actually said that she, at one point in her life, she looked at Singapore and thought, they have discipline, we need discipline, we need Duterte. Because they're profitable, they're rich. So we can be like them if we have this discipline. Wow. It's a it, strange way of like, you know, adding yeah. two plus three to make one. You know, it's a, it's a really kind of, it's a slightly messed up kind of way, but it's, that's that's the kind of success of the colonial mindset. That's the success of, of, of the whole colonization project. Is that, you know, people are just doing it by themselves without you even putting any pressure on them. So when it when it comes to something like, you know, what's happening with the Philippines, there are you know, rumors that those very close to Duterte actually have their own um, stakes in yeah. the drug trade. Yeah. Uh, so it's... You know, it's it's a case of you know, is he doing this because he really wants to quote unquote clean up the streets, or does he just want to shore up his own investments and his own power? Leia, uh, thanks for taking the time to talk this morning, um, and uh, here at this cafe on Mount Royal um, about your amazing film, uh, and uh, thank you again. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, thanks.